Well, as we turn in our Bible today to 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is going to be our fourth and final sermon as we're looking at the qualifications of leaders in the church. As we've been looking at these guidelines, you'll remember that I've asked you to be looking at your own lives individually and asking yourself, do these qualifications describe you? Because while these are marks, God's guidelines for leaders are also marks of Christian maturity for all of us. And so what I want us to do is to look at these things and look at our own life because these are things that any believer in Jesus Christ should seek to have to be true in our own lives. And as we look at the last of this list today, we're going to see that several of the things are tied to how a man leads his home. There's a Chinese proverb that says, it's harder to lead a family than to rule a nation. It's harder to lead a family than to rule a nation. And in society, there are some who appear to be great leaders in public. But if you go and you look at their homes, you find that that is not the case. And while society and the world will tell us that you can separate the two, what God says is these are really inseparable characteristics. Uh, at, At the level of a church leader, especially before you can lead and minister to other families in the church, you have to be doing that in your own home. So as we start with the list today, we look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5, as well as in verse 12. And there it says that a leader must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now we hear the word manage there, and we all know that if you are in an employment situation that you get a job review. There's an evaluation that's given to you. Your manager, your supervisor will look at you and say, these are areas that you're doing well and these are areas for improvement. And if you were to take some of the same questions, some of the same criteria that you get evaluated at work and you were to apply it to your own home, I wonder how you would do. What would your evaluation say? Uh, Can you say that you treat your family at the same level of courtesy and respect that you treat a customer or a coworker? You know, it's sad that so many times we're tempted to treat a stranger better than we do our own family. Can you say that uh, you're patient as a parent as you are at work? Are you a person, as you think about training a new coworker or dealing with somebody who has a, a customer service issue, are you as patient in your own home as you are with your, your family? Do you train and encourage your children like you do your employees? Ask yourself if, if you... If you would like to have a supervisor at work who acts the same way that you do at home, are you, as a a father, more of a dictator than a discipler? You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, 4, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is what's being talked about here in 1 Timothy 3, 4, when it says that a leader keeps his children under control with all dignity. This is a word that we find in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and verse 8, and again in 11, and it means respectfulness and holiness. Now, we're going to delve into a deeper meaning of this word a little further when we see the qualification applied to the life of a leader. But in terms here of how we discipline our children, uh, this, this is talking about how we do not crush a child, how you do not, as a parent, what we just read in Ephesians, do not provoke your children to exasperation. Ask yourself how you're doing. Are you overbearing when it comes to uh, dealing with your children? Now, for some parents, they go too far in the other direction. There, there is no correction uh, in, in the home. There was a, 
an article that was written, it was in the Wall Street Journal in 2016, uh, Dr. Leonard Sachs, he's a uh, medical doctor, and he wrote a book called The Collapse of Parenting. CBS News had a feature on this as well, and he talked about how so many of the patients he deals with today uh, are kids that have never been disciplined by their parents. And they come in, and because the parent has abdicated his role or her role, uh, he says as a medical doctor, physicians are having to step in and deal with it by medicating children. He says there's this over-medication of children in society today. According to his statistics, an American child is 90 times more likely to be on medication than children in many other countries in the world because of this. And so he's calling for parents to step up as a medical doctor, as a secular physician, to say we have to be disciplining uh, our kids. And as you see here, this is what God tells us to do. As you read Ephesians 6, 4, it says there is to be discipline, but it's just to be done with dignity. Um, As you read Proverbs 13, 24, it says he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him with dignity. Some of you remember the old Saturday Evening Post, uh, the first service. Most of the people there had read it. I don't know if you've read the Saturday Evening Post. It's an older publication. But in it, it tells the story of a a stepfather who had married and now had a new son, a stepson that he was trying to connect with and trying to establish a relationship with. And his father tried everything according to what he thought was best, being permissive, giving all kinds of gifts, uh, just, you know, having no limitations with this boy. And things were not going well. And so one day he decided, I'm going to take this new son of mine into the woods and we're going to go on a hike. Maybe that'll help to connect. And the story that was written talks about how they went out and they're on this trail for a long time and they get to this uh, waterfall and and a nice pool and the father says, we're just going to rest here for a little bit. And so he sits down to take a break and the boy decides to go off just kind of exploring around this little bit of water that was there. And after a while, the father uh, hasn't seen or heard from the son and so he starts to call his name. And the boy doesn't answer, and he begins to shout his name, still no answer. He gets up, he's kind of looking around, and he notices the the little boy's blue hat is floating in the middle of the water. And the father begins to panic. He thinks that maybe this son has fallen into the, the water. And so he screams his name loudly, still no answer. He dives into the water, and he starts, you know, searching as best he can, the bottom and around, and he's he keeps surfacing, getting a breath of air over and over. Well, finally, in exhaustion, he, he gets to the shore, he pulls himself up on shore, he's laying there just distraught thinking this boy has, has drowned. And as he's laying there uh, trying to catch his breath, he hears some rustling in the, the woods right behind him and he turns and looks and sees a little boy is standing behind a tree watching. And he, he says to this kid, what, didn't you hear me calling your name? What's going on? How did your hat get in the water? And, and this boy said, well, I threw it in there because I wanted to see what would happen. And the father said, well, you're going to see what's going to happen. (laughs) And he takes this kid and he spanks him like few kids have ever been spanked before. And then he says, the hike's over. We're going back to the car. And, you know, the father's mad and he's kind of walking ahead of the boy. And this little boy's there crying, tears streaming down his face. And after a little bit, he feels this little boy grabs his hand. He says, I felt the hot little fingers of my stepson around my hand. And I turned around and I looked and still sobbing, this little boy says, I'm sorry. Dad, I'm sorry. He says, 
I just wanted to see if you really loved me. And the father said, what do you mean? How did you think I didn't love you? And he said, well, you never disciplined me like other fathers do. Now, in that story, we see two things. First, a warning for us as parents, which is that we shouldn't discipline our children in anger. Uh, that father probably over-disciplined the boy at that moment. But the more important thing that we see in that story is that children want to know, do you as a parent love them enough to be their parent and not a pal? I've dealt with lots of family situations where the mom or the dad want to be the cool parent. They want to be seen as the fun one. And, you know, they want all their friends to think they're great. And so they act more like one of the peers or a pal than they do as a parent. And and while children may not like discipline, they know that if you love them, parents, that you will discipline them. Like I said, it's not just what we see in the scripture. There are secular studies like Dr. Sachs that say the same thing, that children need uh, discipline. They need these boundaries in their life. Now, as we talk about discipline, what, what does that look like? What should it look like? You may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, I'll never spank my kid. You know, that, these are personal decisions that you need to, to decide on your own. There was a man by the name of John Wilmot, and he said, I had six theories about bringing up children, and now I have six children And I have no theories. (laughs) You know, there is not any one size fits all. I I have three kids. And I can tell you that what works with one of them does not work with another one. And what worked with one of them at one age or stage of life doesn't work at another season of life. Because as they grow and they develop, things change and situations may require a different level of, of guidance as they get older and they, create, you know, they have more freedom and they need more freedom because you have to let them start to experience and spread their wings and make decisions before you launch them off into life, whether it's to a career or a college. As we think in terms of, of how as a parent do we decide what to do, I'll tell you the first thing you need to do is pray. You need to pray for wisdom. Need to ask God, God, would you teach me what I don't know? Would you help me to be the mom, the dad, the grandparent? There are lots of grandparents today that are raising children, and you're certainly involved in impacting and influencing the lives of kids. Even if you're not a parent, you can be a mentor. We have lots of wonderful people who are involved in our student ministry that come alongside from college kids to parents who come alongside and mentor Uh, these students who maybe aren't going to listen to mom and dad at home as much as they will to to an outside peer mentor. So pray for wisdom. We also need to have a plan in place. And that plan, as I said, allows for growth. You, you, You need to have some flexibility in how you approach a situation. And there needs to be steps. I deal with families all the time that say we kind of have one and then we go nuclear. And there's no in between. You need to start out where you talk to your kids. And then where maybe you give a time out and then where you take away a privilege or you, you know, on the reverse side of that is they show that they're worthy of more trust. You give more and more freedom. So have a progressive plan when it comes to discipline and raising your kids. In terms of timeouts, as parents, we need them. I just told the story of this father who reacted in anger uh, to what this son had done. And any of you who are parents know there are times your child has danced on your last nerve, Right. And, and you may overreact to it. And so take a time out. Go and cool off, pray, and then come in. 
And if you find yourself in a situation where maybe you over-disciplined your kid, you need to be mature enough to get down on your knees, look them in the face, and say, Daddy was, was too hard on you. You needed to be disciplined, but the way I did it was wrong. Maybe Mom uh, overstepped what I should have said to you. I didn't mean that, but I do want you to know that I love you. And even if you did your discipline in control and it was appropriate for the situation, still give your kid a hug afterwards. And just say to them, I love you. It's why I did what I did. I want you to know that I love you and I want to guide you in life. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this shaping our kids with love as we discipline with dignity. If you look at how that word discipline is spelled, you'll notice that it is the same root as the word discipling. Discipline is discipling. And this is what God is calling us as parents to do. It's this process of helping our kids to go in the right direction. Now, this is tied in with another requirement found in Titus 1.6. There it says to have children who believe, to have children who believe. Remember, as we're looking here in 1 Timothy 3, there's a parallel list in Peter and Titus that talk about the qualifications. And so the Bible is very clear that as a parent, you cannot force your kids to believe. God is the one who draws uh, all men and women, all boys and girls to himself. We see that in John 6:44 and John 12:32. God is the one who has to draw a child to him. So while you can't force your kids to come to faith, what you can do is create an environment that is conducive, that helps them to be more likely to understand and to be open to the, the message of the gospel. Some of you love to garden and think about how you uh, plant a plant. You don't just go out and dig a hole and drop your plant in the soil. Here in San Antonio, you know, we have that limestone layer, so you get about that much real dirt. If you're going to plant a plant, what you do is you go in and you prepare the area. You break up the rock, you take it out, you put good soil in. You'll put the plant in, you'll water it, you'll make sure that it, is, it is, has, a, has a fighting chance at establishing roots and growing and doing things. And this is what we as parents are to do, as grandparents, as others who influence. We're to come alongside and create an environment that will help the person to be open to the gospel. So in that term, I want you to think in, in terms again, ask yourselves questions about what you do as a parent in the home. Do your kids ever see you praying? Not just at, not just at the table when it's time to eat. Uh, do you go up and pray with them before bed? Do they see mom and dad praying before uh, a big decision? Do they ever see you reading the Bible? Uh, when is the last time that your kids saw mom or dad or a grandparent opening God's word and, and, and then talking to them about, hey, this is what, what I'm learning uh, in the Bible right now? So think in terms of, of what you're doing to, to teach your children about God, to help them to grow in the relationship that they will have with him. In Titus 1.6, we're told to have children. A leader is to have children who are not accused of dissipation in Titus 1.6. This word means rebellion. Now, this is not saying that a, that a leader must have perfect children. There are no perfect children, and there are no perfect parents. Everybody from the pastor in the pulpit to all of the rest of the people here today are sinners. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. And so this isn't saying you have to be perfect and your children have to be perfect. What this qualification is looking at is whether you have children who have a pattern of rebellious behavior. 
Is there a pattern of rebellious behavior? And in terms of that, then the qualification is asking, what does the person do with that? As you look at this, this child who may be wayward, there are a number of questions that then must be asked in terms of determining whether a person is qualified to be a leader, uh, an elder, a deacon, a deaconess in the church. And what you do is you look at when did, you say, when did this rebellious behavior begin? Was it when the child was young? Was it after the child uh, left the home and they were out on their own? There, if there are multiple children, you say, are all of the children living a rebellious life? Or is it this one prodigal son or prodigal daughter? When you look at the one who is living in rebellion, you ask, what are the parents doing? Are the parents kind of asleep at the wheel, or are they doing all they can to step in and try to correct uh, the wrong behavior? You know, you can set a 5 p.m. curfew. You can say to your kids, you will be in at 5 p.m. every night, and there's still plenty of time for them to go out and do all kinds of things that are wrong, right? But if you have a parent who says, well, I'm kind of a free-range parent, I don't really set any limits, the kids come and go as they want, they're out at all hours of the night, that's a different uh, scenario to look at and say, what is the parent doing to say there's a problem here? As we talk about this word for rebellion, it's the word dissipation, and what this word literally means is to scatter or lose, to scatter or lose. It's not a picture of a child going off the path, but it's a picture of a child who has gone way off the path and nothing is being done to try to bring them back. Uh, Many of you have heard of uh, Billy Graham. He was the famous evangelist from the past, had a worldwide impact uh, around the world. But in terms of his own kids, he had a son, Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham uh, lived a very rebellious life at one point. He was... um, the prodigal son of Luke chapter 15. Franklin Graham, you could say, was guilty of rebellion, but when you look at the the meaning of dissipation, he was not lost. There was a point in his life where he came back to Christ. He repented of his past ways, and now he leads a worldwide ministry called Samaritan's Purse. He was a, a, a son who had rebellion, but he was not lost in terms of this qualification. As you look at Luke chapter 15, there is another story of the prodigal son. Remember, he took his part of the inheritance from his father. He went off. He lived in sin. And the father continued to watch and wait for this son to come home. The picture there is of our God, and we're the prodigal sons and daughters as we leave God. But he never gives up on us. And if you're a parent who has the pain of a prodigal son or daughter right now, I want you to not give up on your kids. You should be in prayer. You should be doing all you can to to reach into their life, to let them know that you don't approve of their life or what they're doing, but you still love them. You haven't written them off. Talk to them about how God has not written them off. Romans 5, 8 tells us God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so let your son, your daughter, your grandchild know God loves you. And he's waiting with open arms for you to come home and pray for them. And one day you may, I'm not promising, you may have the joy of watching this prodigal child come home like we see in Luke chapter 15. Now, earlier we talked about disciplining with dignity. And this is what's found again in 1 Timothy 3.8. I said we'd come back and talk about this word. 
Because there in 1 Timothy 3.8, you'll see that it says deacons, likewise must be men of dignity. So here it's not just talking about how we as a, a father, a parent, will discipline our children. But what it's saying is our own life reflects respectfulness and holiness. Now, this is a very interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word simnos. And simnos is a word that means gravity and dignity. It's this meaning of gravity being this weighty word. Uh, If you read the Hebrew Old Testament, when it talks about the glory of God, the word used for God's glory is kavod, and it literally means heavy. It's a word that speaks of the glory of God covering him over. It was used of a soldier who would come back covered in loot as they would win victoriously, and they were covered in glory. And so the picture here is of your own life as a person looking at your life and saying, do I do I exude this, this sense of weightiness and heaviness in, in my life? There's a um, Greek commentary called Vines. The lexicon commentary of the Greek language says, no English word exactly conveys the meaning of simnos. It combines both the thought of gravity and dignity. There's another Greek commentator by the name of Mool, and he says this word speaks both of seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. Seriousness of purpose, self-respect in conduct and purpose. Now, I want you to understand something about this word. This is not saying that you are to not have any fun. This is not saying that if you're going to present yourself as a, a person of dignity, that you're somehow this dour, you know, starch collar type of Christian. Uh, you might remember a children's song. It says, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, right? Well, I want to teach you a new song as a Christian, and it goes like this. It says, if you're, if you're saved and you know it, inform your face. If you're saved and you know it, inform your face, right? You know, so many Christians walk around thinking that to be holy, to be respectful, to, you know, be worthy of something like this, it means you frown at every kid you see, that you speak with this stained glass voice that use lots of these and thous, and, and most of them are thou shalt not do this or that. Uh, but that's not what this word is saying. That doesn't make you dignified. What it does is it makes us as Christians look like the walking dead who suck the joy out of everywhere that we are. And that's, that's not what God is saying here. You remember Jesus was, was condemned by the religious leaders of his day because he would eat and drink with sinners. He was at parties. He was around fun things. And they said, that's, that's not you know, befitting of a, of a leader. That, that is not what God is saying here. Some of you remember the old hee-haw song that said, gloom, despair, and agony on me, right? If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And that's what, again, some Christians look like. Uh, But that's not what God wants us to be like. He says you can be reverent and still have fun. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher from the past century, and he was talking to a group of aspiring pastors about their preaching. And he said to them, men, when you talk about heaven, let your face shine as the sun. And he says, but when you talk about hell, well, your normal face will do. So think in terms of your life and what you look like to others. This requirement to be dignified is repeated in 1 Timothy 3.11. There it says women must likewise be dignified. Now the Greek word for women here is gynekos, uh, gynekos. You've heard of a gynecologist, a, a female doctor. 
Well, this is where it comes from. And this word gunakais means either wives or women. It speaks specifically of the female sex. And in terms of this, uh, some will debate whether this is talking about women who serve as deaconesses. Remember, we saw that, that women in the church can serve in this leadership position of deaconesses. And others say, well, is this talking about the wife of a leader? And the answer is it's talking about both. This is a, a, a characteristic that can apply to both groups. Earlier, we saw that if a, a man has children who are not living as they should, it can disqualify him from leadership. And the same can be said of a wife. If you have a wife who is living in a way where she's a, a gossip or she has a bad reputation or things, that reflects on the husband as well. It can be something that can be a disqualifying factor for a leader, again, when you look at what is this husband doing in terms of being a manager in his home? How does he deal with this? As we talk about the possibility of a negative impact of a wife, there's also a positive impact of a wife. If you've ever read Proverbs 31, in Proverbs 31, it talks about how a woman can bring great honor to her husband. In Proverbs 31, verse 21, it says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And right before that, it gave all these characteristics of a godly wife. I can tell you that when you look at my wife, Kim, we've been married for 31 years. And she has made helped to make me the man that I am today. She is a person who brings honor to our home. She's a person who brings honor to me. When she is out, you know, men joke about being in the I Married Above Myself Club. Well, I'm a card-carrying member of that. Uh, she is a woman of excellence, and she impacts my life and ministry. She's my prayer partner. She's my support. She's my co-labor in the ministry. And so as you look at these qualifications, both men and women, ask yourself if this is describing you. As you talk about women walking with God, it's not just to bring honor to their husband, but it is most importantly to bring honor to God. Because we've talked about how we reflect the Savior. All of us as men and women, boys and girls, are representatives of Jesus Christ. People look at us and they judge other Christians. They judge God by what they see in us. So ask yourself what your life looks like. You know, the Bible is full of women who have been used greatly by God. There's Miriam, there's Anna, there's Huldah. These are all women who are listed as prophetesses. They spoke for God. You, you have women like Queen Esther and Abigail who were known not just for their beauty, but for their wisdom and their courage. They were used to save the lives of many. You find Deborah the judge who helped to lead the nation in a time of war. You have Jael who killed the enemy king Sisera. We find women like Dorcas, who's described in Acts 9.36 as a woman who was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. There's Phoebe, who's described in Romans 16.1 as a servant of the church. There are also ladies like Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman who supported the church through, through her endeavors as a businesswoman. And she was a, a blessing to the work of God as she worked out in the marketplace. The book of Acts tells us about Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila helped to disciple leaders in the church. You read in Acts 13, uh, 26, and it says, And Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
This is a discipling taking place. We're reading the book of Timothy, a letter written to the young pastor by the Apostle Paul. And as you read about the life of Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5 and again in 3.15, it talks about his mother and his grandmother teaching him God's word in the home, uh, training up this future leader in the church. So as you look at the li- what we're looking at here, beyond these women in the Bible, there are countless examples all throughout history of women who have been used. Just in our time, as you look at the modern history of our church, in, in just recent history, there were ladies like Amy Carmichael, Fanny Crosby, and Elizabeth Elliot. They helped shape the church through the hymns that they wrote, the inspiring writings. These are things that are still impacting us today. We sing songs that these ladies wrote that are, that are glorifying to God and instruct us in, in the attributes of God. Now, there are other women who are not as well-known, but their influence continues. Uh, you maybe have never heard of the name of Harriet Mears, but I know you've heard the name of people that she impacted. I mentioned one earlier, Billy Graham. Billy Graham says of Henrietta Mears that she has had more influence in my life than any woman beside my mother. Has anybody here ever heard of Bill Bright? He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. Bill Bright was led to the Lord by this lady. And look at the impact that continues to this day through her impact in the life of Bill Bright. So as you think about your life today, whether you're a man or a woman, how does it compare with the qualifications that we see here in 1 Timothy 3.11? There it says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. In a previous sermon, we talked about this word temperate. And you remember that it, it was being used to speak of being sober, literally not mixed with wine. And in a previous message, we talked about how it describes being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What is that controlling factor in your life? Is it some substance or some habit, or is it the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as Christians? And if you've ever been around somebody who's drunk, you know they lose control. Uh, as a cop, I arrested drunk people just about every day uh, for years, and, and they lose control of everything. And the first thing to go often is their mouth, right? And that's what kind of leads into all the other stuff. So as we're talking about being controlled by something here, uh, it's tied in with this next qualification of 1 Timothy 3.11 because it says that we are not to be malicious gossips. And this is the Greek word diabolus, which literally means a slanderer. We have an enemy called Satan, the devil. And he has many names, and one of his names is Diablo, the devil. And this is the word. It literally means a slanderer. And when we gossip or we slander, what we're doing is the work of the devil. I want you to think about that for a moment. When you gossip and slander, you're literally doing the devil's work. You're you're named who he is. And, and what, is imp- what is important for a leader, this quality of, of not being a person who, who is a gossip, because as a leader, I mean, this characteristic alone is important in all of our lives, but know that a leader is entrusted with confidential information. There are things you deal with in a church where there may be a sin issue, there may be a discipline, you're, you're dealing with marriages that are in, in crisis, you're dealing with children who are living in rebellion, and you hear lots of confidential things that if you were to go out and spread them around, it would be destructive to everyone. 
And so this is why this characteristic is so important. You know, one of the ways that, that Christians often gossip that really just saddens me is through sharing prayer requests. You ever had somebody do that? They'll come up and they'll say to you, we need to pray for Pastor Roger. And, you know, the Bible says we should pray specifically. So I need to tell you what's going on with Pastor Roger. And then they start to say all this stuff, right? We don't have enough time to talk about what's going on with Pastor Roger. (laughs) Friends, why do we do that? Why do we take something so sacred like prayer and use it to spread rumors, to gossip, to slander? You know, if you really want to talk to somebody about a brother or sister who's struggling, talk to God. And you know, you don't have to share the details with him. He knows it all. He already knows what's going on. Pray for the person. Just talk to God directly. And if you're saying, but aren't we as Christians supposed to pray for each other? Aren't we supposed to uphold and go to war, you know, spiritual battle for people who are struggling? Yes. I'm not saying that you should never talk about and pray But here's a simple test you can use. If you're tempted to share some juicy gossip, I'm sorry, prayer requests, uh, here's here's your test you can use. Ask yourself if you're being a butcher or a surgeon. Are you being a butcher or a surgeon? Now, if you've ever thought about it, they both cut meat, right? They both cut meat. But one does it for the purpose of devouring, while the other one does it for the purpose of healing. So ask yourself before you share something, is your purpose to devour or to heal? To devour or to heal? Another qualification that's tied in with this is found in 1 Timothy 3.8, and it says that leaders are not to be double-tongued. The Greek word used here is dialogos. It literally means two-tongued, two tongues, the way we speak. It describes the type of person who speaks out of both sides of their mouth. Have you ever met that kind of person? They'll say something to you in public, and then you find out they got aside, and in private they said something different. They're the type of person, as you think in terms of a leader and their qualifications, who will sit in a meeting and say one thing, but then they have the parking lot meeting, or they've been on the phone or or talking to somebody in advance or a post-meeting. And they're sowing disunity, and they're not not being up front with their counsel and, and discussion. So this is why this is a characteristic Uh, that cannot be seen in the life of people. Nobody can trust this type of person who is two-tongued. Now, again, the way the world operates is we say, well, you know, it's okay to shade the truth, right? I mean, when you think about somebody saying that, that that just is wrong. I'm going to shade the truth. Take this with a grain of salt, right? You're going to have to find the kernel of truth that's in there. There was a man by the name of Jody Powell. He was the former press secretary for President Carter. And he was speaking at a conference that was titled Ethics and Integrity in the Federal Government. Ethics and Integrity in the Federal Government. Now, some of you are thinking, isn't that an oxymoron? I mean, does that really go together? Well, as Powell was speaking at this conference, listen to this quote. The reason we should tell the truth in government most of the time is so that when we lie, we are believed. Did you get that? The reason we should tell the truth in government most of the time is so when we lie, we are believed. And that was said in a conference on ethics and integrity. Right? 
The world says it's okay to be double-tongued. But God says it's not okay. He says, let your word be your bond. When you say something, people need to know you can take this to the bank. This is the truth. This is accurate. And whether you are a leader or simply somebody living in the day-to-day life where you feel like you're having no impact, you have to remember you're constantly having an impact. Ask yourself, are you doing the work of the devil or are you doing God's work? Whenever you open your mouth. Now, instead of doing the, the devil's work, as I said, we're to be sharing God's truth and love with those who are in the world. And as we do God's work, the Bible tells us that God sees that. And he will reward it. And as we're talking about leaders, there are actually specific rewards for those who serve as leaders. Sometimes people are like, why would I serve as a leader with all the stuff that has to be dealt with and on and on? Well, there are special rewards that God gives to his leaders. The book of Hebrews tells us God is not unjust so as to forget your work. No matter what work we do for God, there is a day coming where we will be rewarded in heaven and in the millennial kingdom for those things. And for those who serve as leaders, God says there are special rewards that can come. In 1 Timothy 3.13, it says, Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 2, and again in verse 4, says of elders, And when the chief shepherd, this is Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So whether you're a leader or a person in the pew, I want you to look at your life this morning and ask yourself if you're living in a way that is described in the list that we've gone over on the last couple of Sundays. And if you've missed any of those messages, go back and listen you need a review, use that as a checklist to say, what does my walk with God look like? Now, I want to end with an illustration about a man who was a carpenter. And he, he had served this one particular builder for over 30 years. He had been a faithful employee, was a great craftsman. And, and he just came to a point in his life where he felt like it was time to hang up his hammer. So he went to his, his boss, this owner of the company, and he said, I've, I've loved working for you, but I'm getting old, I'm, I'm tired, I, it's, it's time to hang up my hammer, I'm done. And this, this uh, contractor said, you know, I'm going to miss having you here. You've been such a great employee. I've never had to worry about your work, I've never had to check up on you, I've always trusted everything you've done, you're a man of integrity. He said, I'm, I'm going to miss you. He said, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could do me a personal favor. He said, sure, anything. And he said, before you leave, could you build me one more house? Just one more house, just as a special favor. The carpenter said, no, you know, I just, I I think I'm done. And he said, please, just just one more house. And finally, after a little arm twisting, the the carpenter said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do it for you. And so he went and he built this house. And as he was doing it and overseeing the work and doing much of the work himself, um, he resorted to shoddy workmanship. He cut corners just to finish the job. He, he, his heart just wasn't in it. And it was an unfortunate way to end his career. And, and the day came where he was done. He called the boss to come to the house. He hands the keys over to the contractor. He says, it's, it's done. And the contractor said, no, you keep those. He said, those are your keys. He said, this is my reward to you for 30 years of faithful service. This is your house. And as he heard that, this carpenter just shook his head. He said, if only I had known. If only I had known I was building my own house. 
I would have done it all so differently. I would have put my best work into it. I wouldn't have cut any corners. I, it would have been just the, the finest house I had ever built. But now he had to live in this house knowing all the corners he had cut. As we come to a close today, I want you to think in terms of how you're living your life and how you're serving God. Because in a way, you're building a house every day. You're building a house every day by the work you do for God. And ask yourself, are you doing it with integrity? Are you doing it as a craftsman? Are you working for the Lord in a way that when your day comes and you walk through the gates of heaven, you'll hear the, the words that are found in the Bible, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So as you think about your life and these marks that should mark our life, these are things that God calls on us to have seen in our life. So ask yourself again, are these things that, that describe you? And if not, then turn to God and ask him, would you help me to grow in these areas of my walk with you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your word. First, for the living word, Jesus Christ, who's described in John 1 as in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We thank you, Jesus, that you left heaven to come to earth to take on flesh and blood to walk among us so that you could go to the cross and take our place to be the penalty of death to pay for our sins. We thank you, Jesus, for your written word that we've been studying and looking at, your guidebook, your owner's manual for us to say this is how we should live. This is what our life should look like. Would you help us, God, to be followers of you in a way that our life reflects the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Father, as we talk about living for you, it's not because we can earn our way to heaven. You're, you're very clear in your word that for by grace alone, through faith alone, we're saved in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we're not talking about living in a way to earn our way to heaven, and, and really the heavenly rewards are not our, our motivation. We, we want to live in a way that reflects you because of all that you've done for us, just as a, as a response of love and gratitude. But, Father, others are watching us, and they are following us. As Paul said, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And so would you help these things to be true of us? Help us to live in a way that reflects you and your glory, God. We pray these things in the name of our holy, our, our, our holy and loving Savior, Jesus Christ.